Hi, everybody. Welcome to an LSE public event, The Value of Inclusion for a Post-COVID World. Um, I'm Grace Lorden. I am the director of the Inclusion Initiative at the LSE, which just launched on Monday. Um, the event will work as follows. I'll basically speak to the panel for approximately 30 minutes, and then it's really over to you as the audience to send in questions. Um, you can do so continuously using the, cash, um, the, the chat function starting now, and do use the upvote function when you see a question that you like, so it gets the attention that it deserves. Um, if you're tweeting about this event, um, do use the hashtag LSE COVID-19 um, so that we can pick you up and also the um, at LSE underscore TII um, um, Twitter account. Our speakers today are all leaders in industry and I think they're also all folks who will say tonight that inclusion is good for business so we're not going to have any controversy there but I'm pleased to say that they also all, all walk the talk so we can really spend some time learning about their experiences tonight. Um, I'm going to spend a very small amount of time introducing my panel and then we'll have two very short bursts of questions and then it will be over to you as, um, over to you as the audience. So first, let me introduce um, alphabetically Ruth Carney, who worked in the Engineering Centre for 37 years, spanning senior functional and line roles at Royal Dutch Shell PLC, currently the Senior Independent Director of Associated British Foods PLC. She's a patron of the Women in Defence Charter, the Chair of Powerful Women, an initiative to advance gender diversity within the energy sector. Um, then we have Anne Cairns, who is the Executive Vice Chair of MasterCard. She also sits as part of the company's global management company. And Anne is the global chair of the 30% Club, who are a, um, an organization who want to improve the representation of women on boards and more, more recently are going to start um, having ethnicity quotas. Um, next, I want to introduce Amanda Hope um, and also wish her a happy Thanksgiving Eve. She currently serves as Johnson & Johnson's Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer. She also serves as a Strategic Advisor on the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on the New Equality and Inclusion. Um, next is Lance Ugla, who is the Chairman, Founder and CEO of IHS Market. Um, Lance is not only just an alumni of LSE, but I believe he also won our Outstanding Alumni Award. And Lance is a champion of inclusion both inside and outside of IHS Market. And last but not least, Annette Johannes, also a happy um, Thanksgiving Eve, who's joining us from the States. Uh, he is the Corporate Strategy Lead to the CTO Officer at Microsoft. And he has also been a Senior Advisor to the UF Chief Investment and Innovation Officer under the Obama administration. So thank you all and um, welcome to the panel and welcome to the audience. Um, just to kind of start off, so, you know, I mentioned that we launched the Inclusion Initiative here at the LSE. And when I'm talking about inclusion, I talk about um, what we're really aiming for is making sure that all voices around the table are heard within teams, but also being very mindful about the missing voices and taking steps in order to rectify that. And if you take that definition, if you look at the literature that's received, what you'll see is that there is really good correlational evidence that inclusion with that description is very good for business. And secondly, if you take it into the lab and you look at this in kind of a causal framework, you'll see that directly improving inclusion can really um, get you to better outcomes in terms of creativity, innovation and tasks are being um, um, created um, are, and tasks are being completed quicker. So I guess, you know, as I started off, we don't necessarily need to convince the panel here that um, inclusion is good for business. But I want to take a moment to convince some of our audience members who might be asking that. So I'm going to start with you, Wanda, because I know we had some really good conversations about innovation in Johnson & Johnson and about how inclusive culture had actually led to product innovation that you could trace back. So could you give us one of those examples of one of your favorite moments? 
I absolutely can. And Grace, thank you so much for having me join the panel today. Very excited to be here with this uh, wonderful group of experts in this area. And so first, let me just say that at Johnson & Johnson, diversity, equity, and inclusion have been a part of our history for all of our 130 years. In fact, if you go back to the very beginning of our organization, more than half of our first 15 employees more than 130 years ago were women, which was virtually unheard of at that time. So this is a part of who we are, and we've demonstrated that time and time again over the years. So, you know, we have a strategy around diversity, equity, and inclusion that is based on evidence and based on data, and that actually helps us to accelerate uh, our outcomes, I, I think, in, in a more rapid way than we may see in some organizations. But to get directly to your question, let me give you maybe two examples. Uh, it's hard to find my favorite one, but, but there are a couple that really stand out. And, uh, you know, I'll go back to one example that uh, was about a few years ago, maybe back in 2013, um, and it's from the country of Malaysia. Now, as you stated, Grace, we all know that having an environment where everyone feels like they belong, everyone has a voice, and everyone feels empowered to speak up and share ideas is really how we drive innovation. So if you look at the Malaysian market, we all know that that is a majority Muslim population. One of our consumer brands, Listerine, is a mouthwash that we probably all know the name. Um, and as with most mouthwash, it's mouthwashes, it's alcohol-based. So clearly there's not a big market in a, in a country that really doesn't partake of alcohol. So our employees felt empowered to come up with an innovative idea in the Malaysian market. And they actually came up with the idea of creating a Listerine uh, formulation that was based on green tea, not alcohol. And they felt empowered, they had a voice, they brought that idea forward. And lo and behold, we actually created green tea Listerine. And here's, here's where we know that having that, that voice and that power works. Here's some of the results of that innovation. Um, Listerine reached 86% of the target audience because they also created a marketing plan that was based on um, radio advertising when they knew that most of the country were in cars because they were driving to celebrations around Ramadan. Um, and in the first month, we acquired 7% market share. Now, if you know anything about consumer goods, that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. So 7% market share in the launch month. And, and we achieved three times the market penetration within the first three months of launch. So that's an example of employees having a voice and sharing their ideas and it leading to real tangible business growth. A second example is one that's occurred more recently, and that's around our initiative around diversity in clinical trials. So uh, here in the U.S., two of our employee resource groups, our African Ancestry Group and our Hispanic and Latino Group, um, actually had the idea that they wanted to try to impact healthcare inequity by having more people of color in clinical trials. And they created this grassroots movement that eventually turned into an entire department focused on this within our R&D space. And some of the ways that we see that coming to life now is actually with 
COVID-19 um, in that in our J&J efforts to develop a vaccine, we have a full team that are looking at the inequities that are happening uh, around communities of color. And we have a whole strategy that's based on how we connect with those communities, how we get more people of color into those clinical trials and how we even distribute the vaccine once it becomes available into some of these communities that are disproportionately impacted. So those are two of my favorite examples of, of sort of really seeing this come to life and having a, a real life impact, not only on business results, but on the patients and the consumers that we serve around the world. I mean, that's fantastic, Wanda, because it really speaks to the products that we're missing, Abjan, by not listening to the consumer sector, right? So ha having that representation of J&J &J is so important. Ruth, I mean, when I met you, we spoke a lot about the fact that when I started out um, and conceived the Inclusion Initiative, that I spent a lot of time convincing people that inclusion was good for business and they would ask me for evidence. So given the kind of the, the descriptions that Wanda just gave when I talked about the evidence in the beginning, why, why do I keep getting asked this question? Well... Yeah, so if I think about this from my own perspective, so I think I've been really lucky in the sort of experiences that I've had. So, you know, when I was an advancing middle manager, I went on a leadership assessment, which had loads of tests and role plays and an awful lot of feedback. And I remember from that, one of the key pieces of feedback was, if you're going to get to more senior roles, think about making yourself more open and encourage getting more input from the people around you. Because when you get to, you know, the at the top of organizations, decisions and, and issues, they're really complex, they're multifaceted, and the more inputs you get, the better decisions you're going to be making. So that really, you know, sat with me and, and I internalized that. And then not long after, I worked in part of the organization where there was a big drive from the top team down to get the whole organization to be much more engaging and much more inclusive. And the motivation there was partly about the quality of decision making at the top, but also very much how do we unleash all the energy and all the ideas and all the creativity from this whole group of people that we have, very much like the example Wonders just been giving. And then after that, I had a role where I was leading a global organization where the operations were really run by quite small teams in multiple countries all over the world. And we realized that you know, we could not effect change by dictating from the top team what needs to happen. If we didn't have the real understanding and buy-in and ownership from all of those local teams and they didn't know how to make it work for them, then absolutely nothing was going to change at all. So we really had to think about how to listen, how to engage, how to get them to decide what was the right thing to do. So I had all of those experiences and I've seen how effective it is, but I think that an awful lot of people just haven't had those experiences. And, you know, if you, I think if you've grown up with a much more traditional view of what leadership is, where it's all about being strong, being decisive, knowing all the answers, uh, you know, telling the organization what to do and how to do it, then that's so different from inclusive leadership, which is much more being open, listening, taking things in, being prepared to change your mind if you hear other ideas that are better. Then I think if you've been successful in the traditional model, why would you want, I mean, why would you even think about embracing something completely different that feels so counterintuitive? Um, and especially when being an inclusive leader is about very much making yourself vulnerable, admitting that you uh, don't have all the answers that other people around you are going to really have 
your great inputs. So I think that you know, the, the big challenge is that people just don't really understand. You can read research reports and, and get it that it, it, you know, it is much more successful. But actually taking the step to be more inclusive, I think, is a, is a very difficult step. And so I think it's really about seeing is believing and finding more and more ways to have people experience proper inclusion uh, that, that will really help us to get there. It's interesting. I've been doing a number of these talks with, and, and the word vulnerability in exactly the way that you described it, the kind of being vulnerable and being able to say that you don't know as a senior leader in an organization is one of the kind of the first, first steps to bringing, you know, different voices to the table. Um, and can I ask you, so, so you are known for being an inclusive leader. So it feels like given that we're convinced that inclusion is good for business, it feels like a good time to ask you for lessons that you have for ensuring that all talent is included when they're actually in the business. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm fortunate to work in a consumer tech industry, MasterCard, and we reach about two and a half billion people with our consumer products. So somewhat related to Wanda's industry, I think. Um, and, um, and in terms of sort of addressing um, inclusion and diversity across our whole business, uh, about seven years ago, we actually put together a framework and we did it um, to make sure we would be thinking much more broadly about gender inclusion originally, but then it moved into much wider forms of inclusion, ethnicity, disability, and, um, you know, um, all sorts of different types of inclusion. And the framework was um, simple. We said, we want to think about it in terms of what are we doing for our people? What are we doing for our markets? And what do we do for society as a whole? Um, and the reason I love to mention this, although you've started with the people piece, is because um, doing a framework like that links it intrinsically to the strategy of your company and you're not doing something uh, on the side over there of, oh, that's what we do for diversity and inclusion. <laughs> so, um, so on the people side, uh, you know, there are many examples of things that we've done. Um, but for instance, this year, we actually rolled out paternity and maternity leave everywhere around the world. And we're in over 200 countries. And we said full pay, four months full pay for, um, for men and women. And, um, and obviously same-sex couples, etc. Um, and the thing about that is it really levels the playing field because you're not looking at a woman and saying, oh, gosh, she's going to be a mother and she's going to take leave. You're actually looking at a young person, maybe not even a young person, and saying, <laughs> let's not be ageist about <laughs> this, and saying they're going to be a parent. And, um, and it really causes you to think about a certain men and women in the same way. Now, um, if I take the people, markets and society pick, um, framework and then apply it to something like, what are we doing for our black Americans? And this has come up this year um, because really Black Lives Matter, I think, has changed the way that people in America, but way beyond America, are thinking about this. And uh, in that aspect, you know, we started setting goals and targets. For example, we said we want, um, we want to increase the number of senior Black Americans in our company by over 50% in the next few years. 
And I think the key thing about this is it will cause us to measure it and it will cause us to deliver it. And I just want to sort of quickly touch on the fact that we do this in the markets and in society because Wanda gave such a great example of um, the Listerine product and so on. And to say, once you apply that framework everywhere, starts to make a real difference. So, for example, society pillar or a market pillar for us, we said we want to reach 50 million more SMEs and bring them into the financial system because, and this is really important during COVID, um, and in the normal course of business, a third of those would be women. But we said, let's not just leave it as normal. Let's go after 50% women-led businesses. And that means we're going after 25 million small and medium-sized businesses led by women. And, uh, and we're applying exactly that same uh, framework to look at black-led businesses in America. So I just think it's such a nice thing um, to be able to use across the company in many different ways and see how well you're doing and hold yourself up against it. And the framing of that, Anne, is really important. I'm a behavioral scientist. So kind of the, the frame that we're, we're going after more women than we did in the past really suggests that we're actually missing out on money, which I think has been missing in the DNI. Um, you know, in, in the last decade, we focused a lot about retaining employees and retention. And we haven't necessarily focused on bringing the diverse voices to the table is good for business because there's customers out there that we're actually missing as organizations. Um, well, in our case, it's a no-brainer because 85% of the day-to-day -day buying decisions are, are made by women. So women are actually a hugely influential um, part of our, our target market. <laughs> So Nate, let me let me turn to you. So I mean, Microsoft is an example of another business that can really benefit from um, diversity that's actually included. And when I met you, and we've, I've mentioned this to you before, it was I think it was at Nasdaq centers in the Bay Area, and we were in this meeting where you and your colleagues from Nasdaq centers were really embracing the idea of diversity and inclusion. You know, having a fantastic um, discussion, so many different backgrounds. So in that setting. How do we get to the sweet spot like what I observed where everybody is kind of getting into the discussion, they're embracing dissent, but it looks like nobody felt uncomfortable? Yeah, happy to. Well, first, because our North Star is a better society and a better tomorrow. So, so when you have that mission, that North Star, um, you know, having the, these kind of discussions to, to achieve that you know, key result uh, uh, tends to uh, allow that open mind, that collaboration. And, you know, I think, first of all, thank you uh, to the London School of Economics and, of course, uh, Grace, for your leadership uh, in this. And, of course, it's great to be on a call with, uh, you know, companies that I'm obsessed with their products across the board. Um, you know, my, my role at Microsoft, uh, I work in the chief technology officer uh, office, but I am not an um, engineer. Uh, I, I'm a lawyer. Uh, that, that's had the fortune of working on behalf of the United States government to serve in the country. Looking at, at that time when I when I in President Obama's administration, how can we invest in markets to rebuild the economy? This is after the Great Recession. And, um, you know, at Microsoft, uh, I've established this expertise in artificial intelligence, working on the business side of it, the commercial model. How do you take this from research to profit? Uh, and then working on a product team, core engineer, we're looking at product specs, the shipping product, and the CTO's office, a global view of where the world's going to go, the industry's going to go. And... You know, there are a few layers in terms of diversity uh, beyond just the gender or uh, racial or, or sexual orientation, but also intellectual diversity. 
you know, I have always been the non-engineer in the engineering team offering a different perspective. Um, uh, and my perspective is based on my own lived in experience as a, as a, as a uh, well, child of refugees from Eritrea, but an African-American, uh, as well as, a, as somebody who spent time in the government as in, in a, a practicing lawyer. And in the world of AI, the complexities, um, first, you know, when you think about it from the lens of profits, um, I think it's worth the point, if, if someone does not believe that it's not good for the business, I'm, I would like for them to present to me why diversity is not good, right? Uh, I think there should be a panel just on that um, so that they could stress and then look at the stipulated facts that it's great for the bottom line, but also great for society. And when I say society, I'm going to bucket that in one, uh, uh, one effort around what we're doing. Uh, we have a partnership with Apple and Google on contact tracing and exposure notifications for COVID-19. Um, but I'm going to table that for just one second. Uh, in terms of the, the world of profits, in terms of the world of scalability, scale, 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 how do you have as many humans as possible be obsessed with your technology? And uh, in the world of artificial intelligence, um, the complexities from a societal, uh, um, uh, a societal scare in terms of the future of work, uh, in terms of you know, using this technology at scale, in terms of uh, the world that I've spent a lot of time in is facial recognition and video surveillance. Um, you know, how do we use that technology and get, and, and get end customers while at the same time understanding that there are gaps in the technology, particularly um, you know, facial recognition, the, the lack of it, the, that, the inaccuracies amongst darker skin tones as well as uh, uh, women, uh, gender inaccuracies as well as uh, inaccuracies in darker skin tones. So after the, the, the massacre of George Floyd, um, you know, this stopped uh, uh, the big three, big four from selling this technology to police departments uh, on their body cams uh, because, you know, we need to train our models across the industry. It's not a Microsoft thing. It's a industry thing to uh, close the gaps in inaccuracies for darker skin tone faces. Um, and then in terms of genders uh, as well, because when you deploy this technology at scale, let's just say that uh, the future of airports. Um, where there's going to be a lot more facial recognition to make this seamless process of, of going through the journey of the airport. But, you know, are we going to have a line filled with uh, women and, and darker skin tone folks who have to go through a manual process because of the fact that the inaccuracies in facial recognition while Caucasian males can simply go through this journey of, of airports? So just imagine being at JFK and seeing that. Um, the ACLU will be on top of this, and this would ca cause massive outcry uh, in industry against the solution provider. And then that hurts the bottom line. Uh, a populist reaction hurts the bottom line. And then now on the societal aspect of it, you know, what we're seeing is um, the lack of adoption of contact tracing, exposure notification applications on mobile phones for COVID-19 because of the uh, distrust between governments and technology and, and, and communities, uh, particularly communities of color that have been historically oppressed by uh, uh, governments. And so you know, that's not uh, uh, not only going to hinder the bottom line of adoption of technology at scale, but it's going to also hinder society in terms of tackling this complex problem called COVID-19. Uh, because COVID does not see race, it does not see gender, it sees humans. And uh, that will impact the lives of humans if we do not break the chain of exposure and, and spread of COVID. Uh, and so uh, I look at it from the, uh, the bottom line of, of profitability, but also the bottom line of lives. Thank you. Thank you. That's fantastic. So if, if I move to Lance and if I get you, Lance, to reflect on starting IHS Market and the value that you've placed in inclusion, but being able to keep it through its growth. So how do you keep kind of high energy where people are actually embracing dissent? 
Okay, good. Well, well, thank you, Grace, for having me here. And uh, I always feel like I'm learning uh, when I'm on a panel like this uh, with, you know, really great people that have, uh, you know, are decision-making around diversity, equity, uh, inclusion, inclusion. And, uh, you know, as a way of a background, I came from the financial markets in the 80s into the 90s. And, and this is a, a world filled with uh, bias and uh, unconscious bias still remains uh, in many places today. And so when I, uh, when I was listening to Ruth, especially uh, describing what can, you know, make, uh, you know, a great firm and some of the things we need to do, I, I guess constantly learning has got to be at the top and, uh, you know, and being vulnerable. If you're not, uh, I think you said that, Ruth, vulnerable, you know, I think as a leader, you know, we have 17,000 people, but we started with five in the barn. And guess what? The five in the barn were a bunch of white males uh, that formed this company together. And so if you think of leadership in many industries, still the top of the industries are people that are carrying a lot of unconscious bias. And so you need to uh, be vulnerable. Uh, you need to um, listen a lot. But I, I think if you haven't, you know, you know, almost cried uh, when you've uh, engaged around inclusion as a leader, uh, you probably haven't, uh, you know, found the place that you need to find. And so when I was listening to you, Ruth, I was just thinking of all those activities in the firm that I need to do along the way to make sure that unconscious bias isn't there. And, and I guess it's things like, you know, it's, of course, it's walking the talk and it's being a good leader, but I think it's really... Um, making sure that your leadership teams embracing the entire hierarchy of the firm. And, you know, to me, I've shifted my view from, you know, diversity is really important. And I, I think, uh, you know, uh, I might've said to Anne, I, I know I've said to other uh, senior women about the 30% club. When I came home and said to my uh, daughters, I have three daughters and a son, but I said to them, I want to be part of that 30% club. They go, why not the 50% club? So I'm really proud of my company. I set a 50% goal for next year. We're at 40%. And every, it just means that we have to work harder to find those great women that want to come on our board. Uh, and there is lots of them, but they have lots of offers as well. So it's hard to, hard to get, the, get the great ones. Uh, and so we, um, you just have to really be focused on um, making sure that all your decisions go right down and you know, across the firm. And I still feel that if I take even my leadership team and the people reporting to my leadership team, I really have to get them to go much deeper and to really feel what's going on in the firm. And I think things like the Me Too movement, the murder of George Floyd, uh, you know, these woke up a lot of people's senses. But at the same time, uh, the action needs to, uh, uh, needs to happen. And uh, for me personally, I, I just... So here I'm in, I've got 17,000 people globally. We're a growing company. Uh, it's really exciting and I, I can make a difference. And so um, we do lots of things, uh, open town halls. Uh, I know you, you know, some of the things that you can do, you know, town halls every time we have a monthly town hall and it's three or four different people around the world that put up their hand and say, I want to lead the town hall and ask the questions. And until the day before, I don't even want to know what the questions are, you know, so the night before I might get them. Sometimes I might have time to think 
deeply about them. But I think if you really believe in inclusion, diversity, your answers are going to be, even if they're not perfect, they're going to be accepted because you've shown some vulnerability, you have passion, you care, and, and people notice it in the company. I also think somebody said something about metrics. I think metrics are critical. And I'm not the diversity. I, I feel like I'm with a bunch of you know experts here. So uh, I, I think I have to measure everything to see our progress and not be afraid about showing where we're not doing a great job. And um, so we just started something that we're about to do, which we're, we're actually working with um, uh, Microsoft uh, with, and that's going to be around taking our whole outlook by title and seeing what's the inclusivity in our own metrics. And as a leader, you only, we're not going to, we're not going to go in and, you know, push all this data to every leader and tell them where they're doing a poor job. We want leaders to ask for their data so they know what type of leader they are and where they can improve. So we'll be able to see, are you diverse in your uh, calendar invites? Are you diverse in terms of your emails that you send out? Um, are you hierarchically uh, strong? Do you go deep into the organization regularly? I'm dying to see my data. Now, I, I need it to be presented to me in a, in a great way. I think, you know, because you wake up and you think you're the, you know, you know, the best diverse, inclusive leader in the world. But the fact is, is the, do the metrics show that? And, you know, are you better than average or just average? And so to me, um, walk the talk, measure your performance, uh, go deep, be vulnerable. The more you do that, the better. And uh, don't be afraid. And uh, so for me, that's what it's all about. And, uh, I, you know, I, I'm I, I'm learning all the time. And so it's great to be with this panel and getting to hear some real experts uh, describe, uh, you know, the experiences they're having in, in much bigger companies uh, than the one I've founded. I do know, Lance, a CEO who gave the data to the employees and didn't say anything to see if the saliency would cause the leaders to self-correct and kind of monitored whether or not they actually took actions to self-correct as, as kind of an experiment about whether it was unconscious or conscious, I think. Um, Nate, you've, you've kind of touched on what I want to go to already. So basically kind of thinking about um, inclusion and its value kind of going forward, but also the future of work. So it feels, you know, the, the, the pandemic has disrupted many industries and I want you to take this from whatever perspective that you want, but what can we actually expect over the next decade and where does the theme of inclusion fit in? Um, so Nate, do you want to go first? Well, well happy to. Well, Lance, I, I am no expert in diversity. Uh, I, I, want, I want to put it out there. Um, I, I do have a strong understanding of profitability and, and that's by understanding that inclusion is going to bring stronger returns, period. Um, and in regards to um, the future of work, I mean, but that continues to be a question that uh, I get asked all the time. And it continues to be a question that I'm learning as, as I apply the growth mindset. Um, you know, McKinsey just put out the report last week on AI uh, in the companies that have adopted it and around 20% um, increase in revenue in certain lines of business using AI. But when you look at the lines of businesses, uh, typically they have been businesses that um, have been uh, you know, areas of optimization, call centers uh, and warehouses using robotics to move around uh, uh, goods, um, you know, effectively the frontline workers. And these are the same frontline workers that, you know, what they say, 60% of people go to work, so 40% of people can stay at home. 
Um, and, and at times, those 60% uh, of people go to work effectively, in theory, and I have to be candid here, are working themselves out of a job, right? I mean, um, a, a product that I'm obsessed with, Uber, they're hedging heavily on autonomous vehicles, right? And they're making profits through uh, uh, for, uh, you know, frontline workers, drivers. Um, and so the question becomes, uh, you know, how do you course correct um, uh, uh, the skill sets that these people have to adopt in this digital transformation? And, you know, from the domestic market standpoint, I think that uh, when we think about transforming enterprises and companies to be, uh, and COVID has certainly accelerated that like no other, I think this is also a good time for individuals to transform their own skill sets. Um, you know, we're seeing a large unemployment rate and that will continue. And this is Nate Johannes says, Nate Johannes, not uh, on, on Microsoft. And they're certainly not Nate Johannes going to be the next you know, secretary of treasury. But, you know, when we, when we think about it from the, from the market standpoint, um, when finding employment for those folks, look at a third of small businesses, which are the majority of, of the U.S. market or the majority of employers across the globe, um, unfortunately, probably will not be coming back. You continue to, uh, uh, to, to put loans out there, but those jobs or sorry, those companies most likely will not be coming back. And so how do you employ those folks? Right. And it, it, I'm under the thesis that uh, it's imperative to, um, you know, drive net new skill sets that reflect the, uh, uh, the transformation that, that the economy and the, and the market's going. Um, and so uh, in regards to the future of work, investing uh, um, in, you know, jobs that, um, you know, are, are in the uh, uh, software and, and technology space, but also in the science spaces as well. I mean, effectively increasing more investments in STEM. Um, because I, I, I tend to think about those jobs uh, that are either being, uh, um, I wouldn't say the word replaced right now. AI hasn't really necessarily replaced too many jobs, but they have um, certainly, uh, um, you know, had impact in terms of, uh, um, you know, uh, the decrease uh, in, in, in the adjustable market in those spaces. And so investing resources in um, folks to, to, to scale up and, and, and really kind of what the Department of Labor did uh, um, called from coal to code. A lot of these communities that were, that were dependent on, on, on coal uh, mining, how can we uh, retain them to look at uh, working in um, spaces such as, as software engineering and code? Um, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a topic that I think that we all are still trying to grab around. Right now, technology is uh, uh, being leveraged to, to help the journey of, um, of, of you know, creating solutions like the COVID-19 vaccine. At the same time, we have to be cautious in terms of how that technology is going to replace jobs and what are we going to do with these human beings? We need to effectively create a net new skill set because their industry has been um, transformed through, through, the, through tech. So, I mean, there, I think there's no doubt that STEM is going to be, you know, uh, are going to be increasing, the, the jobs in STEM are going to be increasing while we see some other um, jobs disappearing. Ruth, um, kind of with your engineering background, your engineering hat on, um, do you have anything um, different or do you want to pick up um, from where Nate, Nate left off? Well, I, I very much agree with, uh, with, with, with what you've said, Nate. I was going to answer the question a little bit differently, um, which is, you know, what do I expect uh, in the coming years? Um, well, I think we always say this, don't we? But more change, even more rapid change, even more rapid impact of technology. And, you know, Nate, you'd spoke about uh, COVID vaccine. I mean, you know, the fact that we've, the world has moved to get vaccines nearly ready in months 
a process which has normally taken years, I think is a fantastic exemplar of, you know, just the speed with which technology can be developed. I expect the pace of change to just be more and more uh, impacting us. And so, you know, more data, more digital, more, um, more AI, changing business models, new ways of collaborating, you know, so very, very much changing. Um, and so that brings me back to, well, what kind of organizations are going to be successful? And I think, you know, back to what we were talking about before, you know, if you have an organization which has people who have similar backgrounds, who tend to view the world the same, um, or people who don't speak up or aren't listened to, you are much, much less likely to have within your organization the ability to recognize the opportunities that might be presenting all the threats and risks to your um, business that might be emerging. Um, to be successful, you'll need to be really tuned into that and then be able to react, to be responsive, to drop old revenue streams and adopt new businesses. You know, be really agile. And that comes back, I think, to diversity and inclusion being an absolute underpin to being able to do that. So and, and an important part of that is going to be exactly what you said, Nate, about sort of being prepared to keep reskilling and make sure you have the capability as the business is changing and developing. I also thought just to say something about where we're at now with COVID um, and, you know, diversity and inclusion as we transition over the coming shorter term. It seems to me that, you know, there's been an awful lot that's very difficult with COVID, but I have seen in organizations some real positives on the engagement side. I've seen managers maybe even for the first time, really reaching out to their staff, recognizing that if they've got staff who are now having to work remotely, not in the office, or if they've got staff who are shielding because of their health risks or whatever, that personal reach out, engage, stay connected with staff, listen to them in a way that they may have not done before has really been quite a feature. So I think a real positive. And I think that you know, the, the successful businesses for the future right now are not thinking, how can we get over COVID as fast as we can and get back to how we were? They're the businesses and organizations that are thinking, what's gone well here? What can we embrace? What do we really want to embed and shift how we work for the future and then take that even further? So I, I think that that will be a real homework. That's what I look for in organizations right now in how they're sort of thinking about the fairly short term um, I think it's also an, another part of that, coming back to the diversity, is, you know, as well as that upside and positive, there's a real risk that organizations will lose track of their diversity and their metrics as they, you know, go through all kinds of change, restructuring and so on. And so being really cognizant of that, being wide open, eyes wide open, looking at any change they're making are they thinking about their, all their diverse staff and making sure that they are not losing out as changes are made and things are shifting? I, I think this is such an important point, Ruth, because, you know, in the UK, it was decided that gender gap reporting didn't have to be mandatory this year. And it really kind of showed that the government thought of this as a compliance exercise rather than something that was good for business. So, you know, I agree with you that I think that the savvy businesses will be thinking about the trends that they actually keep in place afterwards. So what worked well and what didn't but also really keeping an um, eye on that measurement. And um, Lance, kind of getting you to think about kind of 10 years into the future. 
Well, I was um, looking at a couple of the questions coming in for us. Uh, one was from somebody named uh, uh, Duncan that was asking whether we should uh, teach children about leadership in schools because they should start to, you know, make, uh, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion really a, a second language. And, uh, you know, now is the time. Like how many, uh, you know, if there was a Davos this year, you know, we've had financial crisis, geopolitics, info security. I can bet my life that if there was one this year, World Economic Forum, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion would have been all the, all the chatter. Um, if you want to lend money, if you want to uh, uh, borrow money, if you want to have shareholders, if you want to have, uh, you know, uh, you know, any form of financial market activities in the future, we're all going to be measured in new ways. Uh, I was really proud uh, looking at, uh, you know, Schneider Electric launched a bond uh, in the last few days, and it had three metrics tied to its, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, measurement of diversity uh, in the firm. And, uh, you know, by having those measures and then be having a financial benefit or penalty of that, it, it just shows where the world's going and where the markets are going. And, and therefore, um, now has got to be the time because the discussions are loud, the voices are louder, the measurements coming uh, so when I see, you know, Duncan's uh, asking about teaching leadership in school, I think diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging just has to become second nature. Because as, as our generation and, you know, I'll put myself in the, the older part of the oldest part of this uh, panel uh, passes, the next are going to be even better and the one after us even better. And when I talk to my 20 year old four children between 20 and 30, they wonder why we have to talk about this so much, <laughs> you know, isn't it just happening? Uh, and the fact is, is when you're in those firms and you're in those leadership roles, it's not happening fast enough, but I can tell you, I've never been more mentally active on these topics. And I don't want to be part of that unconscious biased, white male that is trying to tick boxes before they finish their career. I, I want to actually make real change and a lot of sprints. I don't want to, you know, choose three big ideas and do a couple of them well and one of them poorly. I just want to make sure that we're getting the most out of the rest of my uh, leadership. Um, there was one other thing that uh, Karina Robinson asked in a question in there that I thought was interesting, which is tying it into a performance of our leaders and their pay and compensation. And I can say in our firm, uh, we're now in our, we just finished our third year where uh, our top 50 people in the firm uh, all have an award that comes from me that has zero to do with commercial activities has nothing to do. They could be the lowest financial performer and still get the highest uh, reward for their activities around uh, recruitment, learning, training, diversity, all those soft things that make a firm great. And in the first year, it was people were a bit ho-hum. And then they realized there was a three-time spread from the lowest award to the highest, uh, which I was very transparent about. The second year that everybody got better. We're now in the third year. And it's hard to distinguish across the best performers. So it really starts to happen. So I agree with Karina. You've got to put it into compensation. I, 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 
I, I love that. I love Dun that Duncan brought that up because I, I just took a position on the UK Skills and Productivity Board um, for the Leveling Up, which is about kind of changing skills um, under the current government. And in the interview, I spoke a lot about not soft skills, Lance, I call them core skills, because when you call them soft skills, people are much less likely to take them on. Core skills makes them feel that it's actually very necessary. And leadership was there, resilience, creativity, innovation, and also being able to collaborate. Um, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, I'm preaching to the converted here, but a lot of the meetings that I still attend does have the person who's leading the meeting, standing and talking for the longest, telling people their perspective before they ever ask the other people in the room their perspective. And if we could teach kids that's not going to get them very far in life. So it's not about being a good person, actually. You know, as, as Nate said, it, it, it's really about getting those great ideas. I think we will be in, in a much better place. Um, Wanda, Wanda, do you want to pick up on, on anything that Lance said? Absolutely. And, and actually, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe build on a little of all that was said uh, so far. So, yeah, when I think about what the future of work looks like coming out of really us dealing with two pandemics, right? The pandemic of COVID-19 and the pandemic of racism that's become aware uh, to everyone globally now. You know, I do th see things changing quite a bit. Uh, first, um, you know, of course, I, I, I think maybe Ruth was talking about sort of flexibility and agility in how we work. I think that there could be some great learnings that come out of this around where we work that it's not necessary for everyone to be in the building in the same room all the time. And what that does is it opens up work opportunities to people that we may have never even considered before. So one of the things that we've seen happening doing, during COVID-19 is that there was this sort of belief within organizations, if we think about people with, with various disabilities, that people had to be in the workforce in order to, to, to get the work done. And now we're seeing that that may not be the case. So I think we've now opened up the doors to um, attract and engage and, and employ people that maybe we would have never thought about as a part of our workforce in the past. And I, I think that's a really positive thing. It also means that, you know, everyone doesn't have to be in the same location. We can look globally and find the best talent and the best skill sets and, the, and you know, the different perspectives and bring into the workforce. So I think that that's a, a change um, that I'm hoping that we see continue as we move on. Um, also, I, I, I think that there is going to be um, a, a real difference around diversity equity, inclusion around transparency and accountability. And I think Ruth started to talk about that. I think everyone talked about to us, that to a certain extent. When we look at the data and the studies that have happened over the last couple of months, um, you know, there was one study that showed that more than 70% of a Gen Z population, I think it was a market watch study, uh, said that they were going to make permanent employment decisions and purchasing decisions based on how companies responded to the social issues that were important to them. Um, there was also just a, uh, a Crossmark Global Investment Survey where three quarters of investors 
said that they were going to be looking at how companies responded to social issues in order to determine whether or not they would invest with that organization. So I think that diversity and inclusion and equity have come to the forefront of society's consciousness. And there is a real demand from society, uh, external to our organizations and also internal to our organizations to have greater transparency and greater accountability around diversity and equity and inclusion. Now, I'll tell you, around the accountability piece, um, I think it's critical that we continue to measure. As everyone's been saying, what gets measured gets done. We all know that, right? And so we need to think about diversity, equity, and inclusion just as we think about any other business opportunity or business challenge. We need to measure it in the same way. And we need to track and hold people accountable in the same way. Within Johnson & Johnson, we actually, not only do we measure the representation, but we me measure inclusion in a variety of ways uh, every year. And people actually can understand their score around whether or not they're considered an inclusive manager by their by their uh, team and, and, and their employees. So I, I think that those are some critical things that we'll continue to see be important to the external markets that we serve, but also to our employees and things that we, we can't afford to let go of as we figure out what the new normal is. I must ask you about how you're measuring inclusion, Wanda, within WIC, I don't think we've had that conversation. You're, what you've said has given me hope that when we think about ESG, I think yeah. we measure the E, we measure the G, arguably not very well on the E yet, not, we're not there yet, but the S does feel very neglected. So it gives me hope that when there's an index built that both investors and customers will actually use it for guidance on their decision making. Yeah, and we, we actually have, uh, we, it's an inclusion index um, and we are, it, it's embedded into some of our annual company surveys, our employee uh, engagement surveys. And then we actually, actually also do a standalone about every other year. Um, so we have lots of measures around how inclusive our, our leaders are. Um, and, and what that allows us to do is it does allow us to drive accountability, but more importantly, it, it gives us the data to show how we can help improve those behaviors and those competencies. So it helps us, it helps us uh, create the right trainings and the right engagements that we believe will help to uh, impact the behaviors that we think are most important across the organization. Um, and as I think Lance was talking about, uh, we, we have uh, consistently tied that to our more senior level leaders across the years. Um, and now we're, we're looking at how do we go deeper into our organization to really sort of tie that accountability piece to performance ratings and to compensation deeper across our, in our organization. Fantastic. Uh, Ruth. Yes, do you mind if I jump in no, here? No, 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 please do. I just wanted to pick up Wanda on, I mean, you talked really interesting in the sort of measurement of inclusion, but also the measurement of diversity and, and, mm -hmm. and so on. And you said very, very clearly why it's so important to measure and track and hold to account. And I just worry that we all sit here and we all say, yes, this is completely obvious. And yet there are so many voices still that say, no, 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 don't want targets. And even I was, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a webinar and somebody, a, a great speaker, uh, actually a really preeminent woman, but was really saying strongly, targets are bad because if you have targets, you're, this was about gender diversity, you'll put women, 
you'll, you'll make appointments just in order to fill a target. And I just, you know, think in any other, on any other issue where you think this is strategically critical for business, you're thinking, for example, at the board, would we say, okay, management, go off and do some things in this space and come back occasionally and report to us on how you're getting on doing these things. But we're not really interested in whether it's making any difference or where you're getting to okay. or whether, you, whether you're actually going to be competitive and where you need to be as a result. I mean, it's just, it does not make sense. And yet, you know, it is still so common that people do push back and say, no, no, targets will get the wrong outcome. Yeah, and Ruth and I've likewise, got that off my chest now. <laughs> and likewise, we wouldn't launch a new product or a new brand without having a market share target or a forecast target, right? Things that are important to us, we measure. Um, and you know, I think it's we talked about this a little bit earlier in the conversation. I, I, I think it's around continuing to show the value that having this diverse representation brings and how it actually drives innovation, if you marry it with that inclusive environment, how it actually drives innovation and, and results for your organization, both as, a, as an employee, where you just feel good about coming to work, you feel like you belong, you're engaged, you're excited about coming to work, and, and, and that, makes a, that makes a wonderful experience for your employees, and also how it drives that kind of innovation that allows us to better serve for us, our patients, our consumers, our, our customers that we serve every day. And, you know, we talk about it, um, the, the language that, that we've started using recently is more about not so much having a target like you need to hire, but for us, it's we want to have a workforce that reflects the communities that we serve. And if our workforce doesn't resemble those communities that we serve, then we're not getting all of the voices and all of the perspectives and all of the knowledge of those communities within our teams. So if it doesn't reflect the communities that we serve, we all have work to do. And I guarantee you, we all have work to do. Right. So um, but that's that's how we've been we've been talking about it, although we we are uh, putting out some aspirational um, goals, I would say, around where we think we want to be to make sure that we're measuring and we're keep and we're moving in the right direction. It, I mean, I think to that, Nace, go ahead. No, I, I think to, to that point. I mean, it's when we think about um, the conversations we have, how to increase talent uh, to the to the C-suite, close the gap in terms of you know monte rewards um, and effectively uh, uh, drive. Um, you know, reflect, have a leadership or have an organization reflect the country or uh, society. Um, at the same time, we should not only look within the walls of our ivory towers, but the next generation of leaders, right? I mean, if you look at the unemployment rates of certain communities, uh, when you look at uh, these households being shattered, how can we, you know, uh, foster that next generation of leaders? Because the pipeline is going to get even more dry then. You know, it's yeah. common sense. I mean, you can't, uh, a, a tree can't blossom without the right soil, right? But the soil, we got to start with the germination process. Um, you know, it's really important to get in these communities uh, um, that we see uh, the lack of representation in C-suite and, um, you know, be leaders within these communities to, to foster the next generation of talent, the next generations of, of, of Nates or Wanders or Anne's or Ruth or Lance or Grace. Uh, and so, I see that the pipeline is uh, at its current state because the impact of unemployment uh, uh, and the impact COVID has had in certain communities 
in about 15, 20, 30 years to get really dry uh, if we don't close if we don't close the gap. Uh, and, and closing the gap means uh, you know these public-private partnerships working with the communities to foster because uh, you know too much is given, much is uh, uh, required. And uh, I tend to not only think within the walls of, of Microsoft to bring promoting uh, top-tier talent, but also looking at that individual, these schools that are in kindergarten, first and second and third grade, because really after the third grade, if, if you're not on track, it's a slippery, slippery slope. Right. And I'm coming back to the 10, uh, looking 10 years forward, because um, I know that you are putting more quotas on the 30% club based on race. Can, can I imagine that you'll be back here in 10 years telling me the glass ceiling is shattered and that all those quotas were met? Well, I wish. I mean, first of all, I'm complete agreement with Lance, you know, that really the whole idea is to go for parity and 30% is just a, a minimum threshold we're trying to get everyone over. But this year in Britain, we also said we want at least one person of colour on every FTSE 350 board and we would like 50% of those seats to go to women of colour because after all this is a 30% club we've got a gender lens on this and I tell you every single CEO said to me great idea nobody pushed back on it there was a much more of a conversation um, and the, the one that Lance raised about you know finding the great women and the competition out there and so on like, how do we source? You know, let's think about sourcing people. But I mean, to Nate's point, actually, we've got to be growing this from the ground up because people have to come through every level of the corporate world to develop the skills to be able to sit on boards. Lance himself has actually got board apprentices on his board. So something I would love other 30% um, leaders to do. Ruth, I'm just mentioning it to you now. Um, <laughs> I think it is a great way of um, of sourcing future talent and giving young, younger people the ability to get experience of what it's like being on a board. Uh, but we have to do all of these things. And, and I think, you know, in terms of STEM, we have to encourage girls at school age, kind of 10, not to drop their STEM subjects. But by the way, I'm also a little bit more of an optimist on the AI side because when we come out of COVID, we need to address climate change. We need to address climate change anyway. But COVID's shown us we're all connected, right? We will be coming out into a world of 5G and AI. Um, and it won't be equally distributed. I mean, 5G will be around 20% of the world, you know, in 2025. And it'll be like nothing in Africa. Um, so, but when we went into 3G and 4G, we had no idea that it was going to create social networks. Works. We had no concept of it. I was watching Brave New World on TV thinking to myself, what did Alex Huxley miss? You know, he's invented the birth control and everything. He didn't think of social networks. And it was because it was hard for a sci-fi guy to do that. But so we don't know what 5G is going to create. And I'm optimistic that we will create all sorts of new things that will create a world of employment. I'm also optimistic, by the way, that after all, we are creatures of this planet. I cannot wait to go and have another restaurant meal, have a massage, go and, you know, go and go shopping, um, you know, enjoy the whole physicality of being human. 
And, uh, and I think, you know, let us not downplay that aspect. Everything, yes, we're going massively digital, but not everything in the world is digital. And sometimes when we're in Microsoft or when we're in MasterCard or when we're in the capital markets, we, it's easy for us to forget this. Um, and actually what our data from MasterCard is showing is that people are shopping in their local stores you know, within a small radius of their house that may be locked down or it may be that they just like the idea of supporting their local communities and the whole community idea of the future comes into this and how you might design cities, the 15-minute city. So anyway, <laughs> it's been a wonderful discussion. <laughs> so we have some questions from the audience and the first really actually speaks to the idea of, you know, paternity leave and maybe we'll be able to keep more flexible working, but for everybody. And the question is, how do we overcome the hurdle of fathers not taking paternity leave? My firm also recently offered six months for paternity leave and maternity leave, and the men don't use it. So it seemed, Anne, that you suggested that at MasterCard this worked well. It does, it does. I think our data is about over 70% of our men take it, obviously more should, but I mean, the thing is that it's up to the culture of your company. You have to make people feel that, you know, it's acceptable in your company and that people are doing and it's the right thing to do and that you really encourage it. I know that many of the companies have got these policies and nobody follows them. So it's not just a policy thing. It's about culture. The by the way, Lance, I would absolutely love to have your data analysis. Oh, I think that sounds fantastic. And maybe you could check out the culture that way. <laughs> But I think what you touch on and there is kind of narrative. So one of the so I think most of you said, you know, that there'll be good things come out of the pandemic. And at least two of you talked about flexible working. But the narrative around flexible working is about relieving the constraints of women so they can take more on of the second shift. And it isn't necessarily around that flexibility brings more productive workers. Yes, there's probably just as much evidence that suggests that if we give workers autonomy, if we give them flexibility on where and how they work, they end up more productive. So, I mean, is this the opportunity to change the narrative and, and, and kind of, get, you know, push it as a productivity thing rather than something that's there just to retain women? I can see nodding. Well, yeah. I think narrative's extremely important. And by the way, I think that some productivity has absolutely helped. I think there are different things that you have to think about. If you're collaborating to build a new system or something, then you know, it's probably good to get together somewhere because that kind of gets the creative juices running. Um, if you're actually writing a paper or, you know, you're doing some legal work that's kind of all sort of paperwork, cerebral or whatever, then you might find that you find it a lot easier to do that kind of work, you know, um, alone um, somewhere at home. You, mean, you could. So I think it's really getting the right combination that works for your company and, as you say, enhances the productivity. That's what companies... And I think the key thing about changing the narrative is, for goodness sake, manage output, not input. Yeah. So mm. if, it takes, if it takes someone three hours to produce something and it takes someone else 10 hours, do we really care other than the thing is actually produced? Why would we reward the person who took 10 hours to produce the same thing? But a lot of companies measure input. And that... <laughs> 
And pe people will say, Anne, that you can't measure output. And, you know, I started off my career as a health economist where we measure, you know, whether, you know, quality adjusted life years in order to make sure that the right drugs get approved versus the wrong drugs, really tough things to measure. So I think understanding that it might be difficult to measure it, but we can get a signal of output um, pretty easily, actually, that can really replace this presenteeism culture that we've, that we've, that we've grasped, grappled with for so long. Ruth, were you going to say yeah. something? Well, just building on what Anne has said, um, you know, I, th I think actually we should not lose sight of the fact that flexible working, we've seen a revolution yeah. in the last eight months. Yeah. And I know so many businesses who have said, you know, people working in the diversity and inclusion space in particular, but people who have said we've been working for years to try to get flexible working accepted. And it's been exactly as you said, Anne, that you know, the leading companies, they've got all the policies in place, but the culture has made it not a good thing to do. And there's been this implicit question mark about, you know, are people really working if they're at home? You know, what's going to happen to output? What's going to happen to productivity? And now suddenly, you know, everybody understands that this is really, it can be really productive. It is real working. Um, and most importantly, back to this culture piece that you can trust people to be at home yeah. and work and so I think you know it would th this comes back to it would be such a shame if we don't capture this and think so where what is the future so for each organization with their own particular you know what they do how they do it you know what is the opportunity for embedding now difference in how in what expectations we place on people for the future and absolutely, as you say, that can be more productive. Let's let's change the narrative away from we need want everybody back in because then we can keep an eye on them. Well, Grace, Grace, can I, I, I want to go back to the comment you were making about narrative and around sort of how do we change the acceptance? And I do think there's a lot of storytelling that has to happen. Right. And people have to um, leaders that are in prominent positions have to demonstrate that it's okay, right? And so, uh, you know, it, it, I, I, I think the organization, and this is something that we do at J&J, &J, we also have the, patern the paternity leave and, you know, now it's just parental leave, it used to be maternity. Um, but sharing those stories of people that are actually doing it and having people consistently see it's okay and this is accepted is one of the ways that you change it. And just, you know, sort of having leaders live into it. I'll give you an example. Um, our vice chair of Johnson & Johnson, uh, Joaquin Duato, one of our vice chairs, you know, one day I had a, a meeting with him and uh, this was pre, this was in the before times, before COVID-19, right? And we were in, we were in his office and, you know, we're starting the meeting and, and he says, hey, Wanda, you know, I have to, I have to end our meeting 15 minutes early. And I was like, okay, no problem. And he says, yeah, it's my turn to pick up my daughter at school. But just those little things, having leaders in prominent positions show that they're living into it, lets everybody else know that it's okay and it's accepted within the organization. So, because I'm, I'm, you know, what I tell folks is I used to work smart. You know, this isn't flexible working because flexibility means you have the option, right? We do not have the option to go back to the office, uh, at least at least uh, at Microsoft, right? So. so <laughs> So we think about the definition of flexibility, we think about what is the concoction for a flexible work environment, this ain't it, right? 
Now, the litmus test becomes, and, and, and as I always say, I used to work smart because it, it was a blunt, well, I think like many of us, uh, we'd be on the road, come into the office, and at times, um, you know, working from, from home. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, this world of, I'm, I think I, all, I would love to meet all of you in, in person, have this discussion in person, because I'm Zoom, team, Slack, whatever solution fatigued. Uh, you know, it feels good to put on a coat. I, even, I don't think I even know how to know how to put a tie anymore. Uh, so, 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 but from the perspective of, you know, testing that theory of flexible uh, uh, work flexibility, that, that thesis, the, the battleground, that thesis is going to occur once people start to acclimate back in the office. Yeah. And, then, and then we should have that conversation predictably in a year from now, uh, once we see a vaccine at scale and there's a cultural norms to coming back uh, in, into the workplace. But for now, they ain't work flexibility, you're just at home. I think there is, though, Nate, the, 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 the time to change the narrative. There's some jobs that we, people would say to you could never be done at home, yeah. have fundamentally been done at home and done incredibly well. You know, like I work with a lot of traders um, and they would say there's, not a, there's no way that I could do well at home. And some of them have really knocked it out of the park in this period. So, so, uh, so that narrative, I, I think, you know, and I think Ruth mentioned this kind of setting the seeds for the, the new normal. I think we can, we can start having now. I mean, I agree with you about doing things in person. Um, but we should be able to have much more of a mix than we did in, than we did in the past. But 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 Grace, uh, there's there's two different points. One thing to, to to say you could do a job at home, and one thing to have flexibility. I mean, those, those yeah. are those are discussions. Um, but but I would say that you know uh, going back to one is articulating. Um, you know, corporation. I think for the most part, it's follow the leader. And, and I, I and I predict that once the leader comes back to uh, wherever his or her office is, there's going to be the migration of the ant farm following uh, because of the, the FOMO, right? That 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 once the conference calls off, that that conversation you have in the water cooler, right, or the coffee machine, or wherever, wherever people have conversations on, on your campuses or your buildings. Uh, so I, I'm really keen to, uh, to, to to you know test my prediction on uh, uh, flexibility and whether folks are going to come back to the office. I think there's going to be a, a migration back to the office. And, and, the, and the, but there could be sorting as well, Nate. Right, so that some some leaders choose to continue with the, with with um, much more flexibility, and some don't. And that will also affect the type of people who take jobs in the future. So, kind of, if you think of this as a big experiment, it will be interesting to look to see how it actually affects people who choose what jobs and what companies. I, I see a really interesting question for me, working at a university from Claudine Provincia, who's the head of LSE Life. So she says, I've worked for 15 years in the private sector before switching to academia, and I'm delighted to hear examples from the private sector. A question for all speakers, what advice would you give to university leaders to help them build more inclusive organizations? Because I guess if you think about the talent that we've been talking about, the majority of them are still coming through universities. There's some movement towards task-based assessments. So if we take the idea that it needs to be starting at the LSE and in other um, in other higher um, education institutions, what are the lessons that you would that you would like applied? Lance, I feel I should turn to you as our, as our only alumni representation on the panel. Well, I, I, I think that, um, you know, we definitely have learned a lot. Uh, and I agree with Nate, this hasn't been about flexibility this year. We've all just learned how to survive, but we've learned a lot. And uh, I sure hope that I'm brave enough to... Uh, turn some of what we learned into flexibility in the future because, um, you know, when you see different parts of the, uh, the world uh, operating, I especially look, and I know all of our, the firms and, you know, represented here have big operations in other parts of the world where, you know, commutes can take one hour, two hours in and out to the office. 
And we've seen that our work's got done in a really productive way, and especially with the, I know for us, uh, with a, a large footprint in uh, India, Malaysia, um, we have um, uh, really seen productivity at all time high levels. And uh, when I have working groups with the women in those uh, areas that don't have those uh, four hours of commuting or three hours of commuting, it's been a game changer for them. And, uh, you know, so my view is, is how do I make sure that happens, you know, in the future? And I'm really uh, keen to see that happen. So when I get into the teaching and the academic side and I look forward, I, I guess when you listen to everything that's being said here and you can see there's passion from all of us, which is that's the world we're in right now. We're all passionate and we're shifting gears on diversity, equity, and inclusion. So to me, what's really important for a great institution like LSE is, is to keep, make sure the learning's keeping up with this movement and actually even getting ahead with fresh, uh, relevant new ideas to make companies uh, even better in the future. And I, I know that's hard uh, to teach ahead of, uh, ahead of the curve. But I think on this one, because you're dealing with youth and fresh ideas, and we're dealing with established uh, norms and biases, we need that uh, fresh change to happen. And I, I think in our firm, when I think about young people asking me how they can participate and improve, get involved in recruiting, right? Meet the people, interview the people, participate. It can't, we can't hire all from the top. We've got we've to hire as a firm. And uh, if I can get all the diversity of the firm uh, bringing in new people into the firm, uh, then we're going to have a much better place. So I hope uh, uh, the LSC uh, uh, can really invest in their recruiting and their diversity in students, their diversity in teaching, and then bring ideas to corporations, get, get ahead of the curve on this subject, because I think we're all learning. So we'll, we'll, we'll set that performance curve together. I guess, I mean, as somebody who's, uh, whose background is in economics, you know, one of the criticisms is that a certain type of person tends to study economics and they tend to do a certain type of question. So even though you might get the picture of diversity, you might get more women, you might get more black students, you might get more people of various disabilities. If the supervisors are only taking the students that match with their, what they like and their taste, the student just becomes a mold then a mold of the professor. So I, I feel the professor should be taking more risk actually and moving outside their comfort zone and asking for help from other colleagues. So, you know, I might see a great student where I don't understand what they're trying to do. It's not my background necessarily, but I can bet if I give it some thought, there's two or three people that could be a team that could support that excellent student with, with, with their new ideas. And yeah, I mean, you know, at, at a different level, I I spoke on Speakers for School in Britain this year, and normally with Speakers for School, you kind of show up at a school and you talk to a class, you know, about what it's like being, you know, an executive in the technology industry or something like this. But because it was uh, virtual, um, I think I ended up speaking to something like two and a half thousand school kids across Britain, some of them in very rural areas. Now, admittedly, the, the most important question they asked me in the whole thing was, can we see your dog? <laughs> and they could because she was lying at my feet and I lifted up this cocker spaniel. But the thing, the thing is that, what, you know, it, I, universities are now doing a series of 
you know, remote lectures. I don't know what the, was, is happening with the tutorials, but surely you must be thinking to yourself that you could be creating content that can be distributed all over the planet to people who would never have access to the great minds that are at the LSE. And why wouldn't you be democratizing what you deliver? Because wouldn't you be bringing the world forward much faster? I, I, I agree with you entirely. I, 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 and, I, and I think, you know, we have done great strides into virtual education, but I think that trend is, is set to continue. And I find myself every day having conversations with people all over the world, which never would have happened, you know, before COVID. So I might have made an effort to have those calls. But now, because my network is much wider, you know, I mean, Nate and Wanda, we, we wouldn't have been able to afford to bring you to London. And you're here tonight on Thanksgiving Eve, which is, which is, which is really fantastic. So I absolutely agree with you, man. <laughs> Microsoft would have paid for it. So I have a COVID-related question from A.B. Cotter, who says, what new measures, in your opinion, should be included in the workplace to support and include those with long COVID and other chronic health conditions who might need to pace themselves due to their condition, even if we're going back to work? So about kind of, and I guess as well, you know, um, this this change has allowed people who weren't included in the workplace for mobility reasons, who do much better working at home to be included. So how do we make sure that they actually manage to retain that when there is the shift? And if it follows, you know, what, what Nate said, this idea that everyone goes back to work, that we don't lose um, the productivity that, that, that they were giving to the business. Any ideas of structures? Yeah, I mean, I could I could talk a little bit about some of the things that we're doing um, in J and J, and and you know, as the world's uh, most comprehensive healthcare company, we we spend a lot of time uh, on our workforce, and and our goal is to have the healthiest workforce in the world. And so, you know, I do think that there is going to need to be support. So first of all, it's that flexibility. So if someone is coming back. Um, that has had uh, COVID-19 and, uh, or, or quite frankly, any uh, significant illness or anything that is that has caused them to be out of the workforce for a period of time, you have to surround them with the structure and the support to come back into the workforce in a successful way. And so, you know, some of that could be around flexible work arrangements, but we also at, and we also at J&J have a lot of support around, um, uh, uh, mental wellness, right? So when people are dealing with difficult uh, diseases or, or challenges, we have uh, the kind of support that will help them work through that. Um, we're giving uh, support around even physical wellness, right? So, um, and, and spiritual wellness, right? So we, we actually have courses that people take that, that shows them how to be their best from a, from a physical, an emotional, a spiritual standpoint. Um, and and uh, actually we've had, I think more than 85% of our employees around the world experience that course don't quote me on the 85%, but it's somewhere around there. Uh, but, it, but it really is making sure that, that um, our employees understand, 
you know, how to eat well, how to exercise in a way that works for them, how, the importance of sleep and, and, uh, and, and giving your, yourself the, the time to recover from the extensive work and the mental stress that we have, how to balance your time with work and life integration, how to make sure you have your best energy when you're at home. And I think a lot of those resources can be very successful in supporting people that come back to work uh, that may have lasting effects of COVID-19 or quite frankly, come back to work from any kind of disease or, or illness uh, that may be impact them in the long term. Um, a, a question I always get asked when I do these webinars that I'm going to put to you, because I think it's, it's a fantastic question is, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about high level policies that senior leaders can put in place and the importance of measuring whether or not it's actually changing the outcome in the direction that we want. But, you know, a lot of our listeners this evening are probably in organisations where they don't have that power. They can't easily change the policies and they may not even yet be running teams. So I'm wondering if you could imagine yourself in the shoes of somebody who wants to have a more inclusive culture, but doesn't actually have the power to do some of the changes that we have tonight. What's the one action that you would like to see them doing to kind of get them closer to where they want to be? Um, so can I start with you, Anne? Yes, well, I mean, uh, you know, in our company, we've got things um, called BRGs, which are, you know, interest groups that, that people can actually join um, who, who want to sort of talk about, take action in specific areas. I mean, the Women's Network is the biggest interest group. Yeah. There's sort of half the firm in that, more or less. And in fact, the men have started to join that. So it's a really successful group. So, um, so I think, you know, looking for, looking for groups inside your company that, uh, that are there that you could actually be very active in would be a great thing to do. I mean, obviously, if the company has things like big mentorship schemes and reverse mentorship schemes, that's actually excellent as well, because, you know, I know, I know some CEOs that have got young mentors in their companies who just tell them how it is. You know, look, I don't want you classifying me in this box or that box. You know, I don't want you even talking about it that way. And it's really, it's really good. I mean, the, the CEOs I know love it, and of course the, um, the the younger people do too. So these are the kind of ideas you could try. Lance, one action that somebody can take to make their company more inclusive? Yeah, well, it's hard to uh, beat the ones uh, Anne said, and she works for one of the best uh, CEOs I've ever met, uh, Ajay Banga. And um, but I, I guess it really speaking up and engaging in the change process that's happening right now. The world's changing all around us. This is the fastest change any of us have ever felt or imagined. And so for my message to all the young people is get involved. That backs up what Anne says. Have a voice, whether it's uh, mentorship, recruiting, participation. Just don't be afraid. Uh, just just do it. There's You have so much uh, support now from you know, more than 50% of the leaders in the world actually really care and they want to make a difference and they don't want to just tick boxes. So get involved and, uh, and, and make a difference. Nate, do you have one action that you want people to take? Yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, uh, the action is to take action. I think that too many times it's, you know, folks post and complain and uh, uh, don't do anything about it. So, uh, you know, the, the action is to take action in terms of, uh, you know, one of the strongest ways to drive cultural change, to, as, as Lance has articulated uh, earlier, is to recruit. Um, I think that recruiting talent uh, 
sourcing talent is the mother's milk to a great organization. And so, um, you know, for, for, for an individual to, to go out there and, and source talent um, outside of their networks, you know, this whole notion of groupthink, and I'm certainly at times guilty of it when, when I hear a great role and I, and I reach out to folks and just, uh, uh, and they tend to be, they come from a certain um, pedigree. And so is to, to, to go out there and source talent. Fantastic. And Ruth? Yeah, so I, I probably thinking about quite large organizations, it always really strikes me how you can have lots of pockets of different kinds of culture within a big organization. So I would think very much, you know, similar to what Anne and Lance have said, you know, find kindred spirits, you know, form networks with people. And I'm a great believer in skunk works, you know, so you know, get together with kindred spirits and see what you can do, sort of see what you actions you can take to drive change. But I've got another answer. You said one, but another answer, which is a bit different. If it's really important to you to work in an inclusive environment and you're in a big organization where that's not necessarily the norm, choose your boss carefully. You know, don't just go for a job because it's a great role or a great opportunity. Really do due diligence on the boss because you, know, you can have a fantastically inclusive bubble within another organization. And Wanda, last but not least. Yes, and uh, like Ruth, I can't choose one, but I have three quick ones. And the first one would be, <laughs> the first one would be, to learn, right? I think that what we've seen over the last couple of months is that people were not really aware of the experiences that, that many others that they work side by side, day by day with. And so be open to learning about other experiences and even understand your own unconscious biases so that you can see how you personally can get better. The second would be to speak up and speak out, right? So have confidence to share your perspective and your voice. And if you see someone or you see something where you feel like someone is not being treated fairly or you see someone's unconscious bias coming up, you got to call you got to call that out in order to really drive change in the organization. And then the third would be share what you learn with the people that you love. Right. I mean, I feel like parents of young children literally have the ability in their hand to create a better next generation. And so if everyone is learning and everyone is taking that back home to their their loved ones, their family, their friends, and their sharing, we literally have the opportunity to change the world. I, I really like that you brought that up, Wanda, because we haven't mentioned it, but the, um, the notion of silence, I think, in organizations is kind of the last wall to fall. Um, and, you know, have, having people raise issues that are really, really important and to have them ignored is heartbreaking. But I think what Ruth has just said is that maybe find a manager who will listen. So, you know, particularly if you're in a large organization, um, find, find that manager who will listen and don't stay silent. I think, you know, kind of finding your voice, however that is, whether it's anonymous or whether it's, it's just speaking to people is really important. I mean, for me, this is fascinating and I'm, I'm really conscious that we're out of time. I'm conscious that we haven't spoken about SMEs and I know, Anne, you mentioned them, so I should have been primed to, to speak about it. But, you know, in, in the UK and in, and in many developed countries, there's still um, big disparities in um, 
the venture capital that's been given to people based on their gender, based on their race. And I think this is another missing, you know, um, opportunity that we're missing. We're lucky in the Inclusion Initiative, we have a fantastic woman called Erica Broadnock, who is researching this. So if you're interested in it, do look it up. And I will put her on an LSE event um, sometime soon. Um, and all that is left to say is for me to um, thank my panel. Um, thanks to Ruth, um, Anne, Lance, Nate and Wanda. And, you know, thank you for the audience if you come to the LSE, you'll know that I give a whole lecture on how it's a privilege to take people's time. So thank you for sticking with us to the end and happy Thanksgiving for my American friends.